This episode is brought to you in partnership with Wacom. Across the globe, learning is still handwriting-centric, especially in mathematics and science. This can make the shift to digital tasks challenging. Many schools are seeking effective apps and hardware to ensure a smoother transition for digital learning especially for STEM lessons. Expanding digital pen and ink technology from teachers to students opens up new possibilities for communication and collaboration in and out of the classroom. Using pen-enabled devices, teachers and students can explain complex concepts, take notes, provide feedback, and show their work quickly and easily. Wacom pen displays and tablets easily plug in to the existing IT equipment in the classroom, enabling members of the class to interact with the digital content being shared. The teacher never even needs to turn their back on the class. Collaboration is simple when working on shared documents and apps with the digital pen. There's no new software to learn. You just work with the pen on the screen or tablet instead of the mouse and keyboard on your computer. As educators, myself, Steve and Ben have all integrated the use of Wacom technology into where we've worked in education, into colleges and schools and we have seen the benefits for ourselves. So go check it out for yourself. Uh, The link is in the show notes for this episode. Good evening. Well, I say good evening. It's evening where we're recording, but... Welcome to another episode of the Edgy Futurist podcast. Whenever, wherever this goes out, it's going to be episode 198, 199 or 200 or something like that. It's going to be it's going to be up there. It's going to be up there nearly episode 200. So thanks for joining us. If this is your first time or if this is your 200th time, we are very, very grateful for you joining us. And uh, we're looking forward to having a great chat with the guest that is waiting in uh, backstage in in a, in a few minutes' time. So, Steve, Dan, um, I believe that we're all uh, suffering a little bit with the lurgy or the or the winter colds or whatever going on, and family's a little bit ill. But other than that, how, how are we doing? How have our week been? Yeah, it's been a cracking week, I'll be honest. Um, yeah, starting to feel a little bit dodgy. The kids are struggling, um, but uh, it's the life of a, of a dad of two young kids. Uh, my wife's uh, got them. Hopefully, keeping on wraps and settling him to bed as I'm on it. But uh, no, it's been a really good week. Um, I ran um, as part of my the day stuff. Ran a, a, an event with Google on Tuesday. Um, great attendance from across the further education community. Um, but the thing that kind of and it, it does tie into tonight. The thing that I absolutely loved about the event it was we we ran a, a focus and a breakout space on leadership, and it was focused on choosing the right technology visionary leadership and creating a culture of curiosity and like spaces for coaching and what does that look like and I think uh, uh, yeah I'm, I'm excited to, to kind of get in with uh, and, and discuss stuff like that with a guest and and pretty much every story of impact was around creating that space rather than the didactic old school everybody gets the same CPD everybody like you know all of those kind of things and um so yeah, it's been a, it's been a really positive week to be to be honest. I'm probably, if I'm honest, and not even anywhere near the end of November and crawling to Christmas. So uh, I don't know if anybody else is feeling that, but yeah, it's been a good days. Of... thirty-one days as we're recording. It's thirty-one days. Is that what it is? Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it'll be Christmas Eve then in a month's time. Yep, wow. Crazy. God. God. Right. What about you, Dan? <laughs> yeah. Apart from trying to stay awake at the minute, I'm like. I'm struggling tonight. I really am. Um, 
the yeah, it's it's been a good week. Starting to uh, go out for jobs for my team, doing a lot of recruitment at the moment. Um, so so all good, getting the the team in and starting to build the team. So yeah, I go off on leave on in two and a half weeks, heading down to heading down to France for a few weeks over Christmas. So trying to get get uh, some of the key people in place in the team before that, so we can hit the ground running in January. But yeah, yeah, it's all good. All good up here. Um, Without being too political, are you are you are you going to France that early for Christmas just in case it takes that long to get across and just hoping to make it on Christmas <laughs> Day or what? What? What's, is that? Is that the method? Is that? The... That's interesting you say that. Apparently the the uh, the border border control police what they're called. The border control. Term. The traffic cones that they put out because they're, they're not putting enough on. Is that what you the, mean? Uh, but they're going on strike the uh, the week before oh. Christmas, so I don't know if we'll get back in the country. Uh, oh, that's all right. We'll... You can stay there. It's all right staying in France. But yeah, it's yeah. just getting out of this. Devastated. Oh, Absolutely devastated. <laughs> but we, we, you know, we never we never like to get political on this um, on this podcast. Uh, we have we have very um, inclusive political. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. We don't. Uh, but yeah, good. It's it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's that countdown to Christmas. It's that obviously moving into uh, a different season. It's getting darker earlier and all those kind of things. But we know that um, our teachers are uh, the t- and the teachers, a lot of our listeners are uh, are gearing up for that for that key time of a couple of weeks off. But um, hopefully we'll be able to give you something today that will uh, inspire you and move you into uh, into some new stuff. So if you haven't done so already, please make sure that you subscribe to the channel. It's really great because it gives us a little bit of an insight of where people are coming from and what they're listening to, but also uh, means that you get everything as it comes out. And uh, just a little shout out there to the uh, weekly newsletter that goes out on a Saturday morning. If you haven't already subscribed to that, head over to our website or over to our social channels and you can um, you can sign up for that. It's also going to be in the show notes as well, how to subscribe to the newsletter. And then you'll get all of our content for the week going out on a Saturday. So <clears throat> without further ado, and just before that frog, disappears out of my throat it'd be great to bring our guest in for this evening um it's an, it's always interesting when we bring a guest in um especially when he's uh when they're not somebody that we've met in person and actually because of uh, where stefan lives um he is um he is definitely a long way from all of us um he's as far south as you can go pretty much in the uk so he'll he'll tell us almost anyway he'll tell us a little bit um a little bit about that but um stefan thank you for joining us uh do you want to tell us a little i guess a little bit about um where you are and where you've come from yeah by all means thank you very much for having me on evening all um so where am i so i'm sat um in a house Um, On the Isle of Wight. So I live on the Isle of Wight and we've been on the Isle of Wight now for about seven years. So seven years ago, having holidayed here about six or seven times, we thought, wouldn't it be really cool to live here, to actually live by the sea? Coming from Wolverhampton, where I was born, about as far as you can get from the sea, wouldn't it be amazing to actually live by the one thing you never saw? And we thought, why not? So, um, yeah, we made it happen and uh, moved over here. I worked uh, or was working all over the UK, which we can get on to in a minute. Um, and we pretty much worked out, you know, I live on a, I leave on a Sunday night. I arrive back on a Friday night. I could pretty much live anywhere in the world and travel to the work that I do. So we moved to the Isle of Wight. And it's um, without 
without a shadow of a doubt, it's one of the most beautiful places you could ever wish to live. And um, every conceivable type of beach you might want, you're generally 20 minutes away from. And when the sun is shining, it's a paradise island. Love it, love it. So you physically are on the Isle of Wight um, and uh, move from... A place that's very different than the Isle of Wight, as you've as you've mentioned, uh, in, but still a lovely place. Uh, I know still we have some listeners place. who uh, work at Wolverhampton College, so uh, we'll uh, we'll make sure that they all hear great things about Wolverhampton. Yeah. But obviously, you talk there about the work that you do, and uh, we don't just want to just talk about the work because we know that there's principles and purpose and stuff behind that. But yeah. could you just give our listeners a little bit of an insight into? Um, the, <laughs> as, I say this knowing full well that there's a full range of work here. So I wonder if you could tell people a little bit of a, a journey of your work history and then we can get into some of the principles behind what you do. Yeah, yeah. I'll try and keep it potted because I could definitely probably talk all night on it. So um, let's keep it. So um, I did a law degree at university and I desperately wanted to advocate on behalf of others and be a, um, a barrister. Um, but oddly, based on what I'll tell you in a few minutes' time, um, I was too scared to stand on my feet. And I think that's partly our kind of signpost, partly to do with, with my education in truth. Um, but I, I was really uncomfortable. I didn't really have the self-belief to stand up there to advocate for myself. So I left law behind um, and went to work for the wonderful Nationwide Building Society because my mom and dad had a mortgage with them. They'd always been lovely to my folks. And I thought, I want to go somewhere that's nice. Um, never occurred to me in the million years that I was a graduate, so I should get on the graduate scheme. So I went and worked on the till and in cash out, just in a law degree, and now I'm handing out £20 notes. Um, so I did that, demonstrated I was really good at having a conversation with people, finding out and understanding what they needed. So they put me on a desk, selling broadly in a really ethical way, let me say. Um, and then really rapidly, they just went, you know, you'd be really good, I think, at you know developing people. And I was like, Where's that come from? But I trusted it. And so at the age of 24, working for Nationwide, I was trained as a professional coach. So trained at 24 to coach predominantly sales and business development early on. Um, but latterly, about a year later, um, I was thrust into the world of coaching leaders. Um, and they'd often be like 45, 50, and I'm 25, young whippersnapper, never managed, never led. And the view was, what can you do to help me? So um, thankfully, I did a good job, had a couple of leadership positions a bit later on, as well as some national change roles and kind of demonstrated that I could coach as well as as well as lead. So I took sales teams from zero to hero in a very short space of time. Nationwide decided to make my role redundant and I was a bit immature at that point and went, they've got a vendetta against me. I've done a brilliant job. Why are you getting rid of me? They weren't. They were getting rid of the job. Um, but I um, kind of um, went uh, stuffy then. I'm going to have to leave. And then I realised I was scared to leave. So um, I thought, what's the best thing to do? Leave. If you're scared, you need to leave and embrace it. So I left after 10 years, went to work for NFU Mutual for a year, the insurer, and, and I completely reshaped the way in which they sell both on face-to-face -face and on the telephone. Also looked at the way in which they do sales leadership and also looked at the way in which they supervise all the sellers, including training people to coach. Did that for a year and a half or so, kind of, uh, without sending hopefully two over the top kind of changed the world there a bit and then went what do I do next and I was kind of realized that, again I was a bit fearful of starting up my own business so I set up my own business as a consultant coaching 
and did that for seven years, including lecturing on coaching and leadership for Birmingham City Uni, um, training in-house pools of coaches for people like Royal Mail, and working with you know fairly senior people in charities, etc. Did that for a whole host of time, and then um, did a leadership development program, including coaching with probably you know some of the highest level brass for Santander, the bank in the UK, for about three years. And um, this might go down well based on the fact there's a few of us with a beard. Is I had a beard as a consultant. I had a conversation about my beard, and the the general conversation was what was you know what's what's with the beard, and I went, what do you mean what's with the beard? And they went, well you've got a big beard. And I went, yeah, I've got a big beard. And I said, um, broadly, does it, does it stop me from doing a good job? And they went, no. I said, okay. And the short version is they said, um, I said to them, if ever there's a job that comes up back in the leadership space that you think could be suitable, give me a nod. No favours, just to be clear. Interview the lot. And um, a few months later, somebody knocked or gave me a phone call and said, there's a role available. Would you like to interview for it? And I'd had an itch that I wanted to scratch having you know, taught coach, uh, taught leadership at 24 or coach leadership at 24, had some leadership roles, then disappeared and went, I need to prove myself back at the top because I'm still only 40, I think I was then. And I'm coaching, you know, heads of CEOs who just go, you're still only 40. So I thought I'll go and do a leadership position and I'll prove my worth as a leader again. So I did that for a year. Um, it was going really well from everybody else's perspective, but it coincided with moving to the Isle of Wight and um, I was never home. I put myself under too much pressure to do a really great job. And whilst everybody was happy, and I mentioned this to you earlier, I had a breakdown, completely fell apart, crying my eyes out in St Paul's uh, Gardner, St Paul's Cathedral, and could not square the fact that I was doing a good job by everybody else's perception, but I wasn't happy. And I also wasn't with my family. So um, fair play to my wife. My wife says, Steph, you need to come home. Quit. The bosses at Santander were amazing, gave me loads of time to think about it. And during that period of time, we just went, I don't need to go back into corporate world. I don't need to prove that, really. I have proved it, but I don't need to prove it anymore. I certainly don't need to prove it to coach. And um, so we went, what are we going to do next? Hopefully this isn't too much of a ramble. What are we going to do next? And we just went, well, we need, my wife went, we need something that I can work alongside you and keep an eye on you so you don't work too hard. I need somewhere that the kids can be so we're comfortable with them. I'd got a four, five-year-old son, I think, and a four-month-old daughter at that time. So we need the kids to be able to be in the business. And we need something that's missing. And there's some good cafes on our island, but there wasn't one right in the middle of the village that we would go and sit in. So we went, why don't we open a coffee house? I've never made a cup of coffee until then, other than an instant cup of coffee. And so... I had three months to work out how you open an award-winning coffee house, which is award-winning now, from scratch. It used to be a bookies. It was empty. had no machine, had no plumbing, had anything. We worked out how to set it all up, get it running. And within the four, first year, I think we won about six awards. Um, and it's now rated as the fourth best coffee house in the whole of the UK based on TripAdvisor reviews. And I baristed for the first year and a half every single coffee. <laughs> Having started on day one, completely bricking it, going, what the hell do I do? And then trying to bring you up to date, lockdown hit. We're award-winning lockdown hits. We're worried about the coffee house going to pot. And so I set up a crowdfunder and we raised 20,000 quid 
for people buy things in advance to keep us afloat and then they get the goods later. So we raised 20,000 quid to save us afloat. We thought we'd need 40. The truth is we needed 40, but we made 20 last. And during that period, because we were closed for large parts, I had a chance to do some drawing that I'd not done for ages. People started buying my artwork. So I set up an art gallery, which is still available now. And somebody contacted me, really senior, the most senior person I've ever, or I'd ever coached to that point, and said, I hear you used to coach. Would you coach again? And this is from somebody that had a breakdown. And then, by the way, I forgot to tell you I had a breakdown just before lockdown again. Ah, uh, because I pushed myself too hard. And um, somebody said, would you coach again? I went, I'll only coach again if I can press the on switch on the laptop and not think about it before and not think about it afterwards. And they went, that's all good. So I coached. It went brilliantly. And I went, I've missed this. This was my calling. This is the thing I wanted to be the best of in the entire world. And um, so I went back about a year and a half ago coaching, coaching at a really senior level. And I am just absolutely and unbelievably focused at going. Leadership, I'm going to say this, leadership is far easier than people make out. It's a lot of graft and it's hard work, but it's a lot easier than people make out. Often it's just about listening to you and what you think you should do. And often you're right. And most people don't have the bravery to do that and get the license from their bosses to do what they need, what needs to be done. And there's a lot of people making a lot of money out there from books and podcasts and a whole host of stuff around leadership. But there ain't no people getting better at leading. The people I work with do. And I don't say that lightly. I'm not really one to shout about it, but I've had to learn to do so. And so um, I just go, I appear for whatever reason to have a God-given talent to coach people and to help people to do be better at what they do. <laughs> so I apply it. So there you I, go. I'll, I'll, I'll pull down now as I feel like I'm going to step them off. I suppose, I mean, just to pick up on the last thing you said there, what's just to, to start delving under the cover of all of that, um, what are you doing that those books and podcasts aren't doing? I just listen. Uh, you know, this isn't contrived. What do I say? I know shed loads about what you need to do in order to lead effectively. I have a seven-step process, which I couldn't articulate to you right now in a way that was brilliant. It was taught to me by the best, best boss I've ever had, and I developed it. And there's a book there some point that I use. But that leadership and that experience just informs this swathe of, you know, knowledge that sits in the background. That means when I listen to somebody... And I combine it with the ability to coach, which is to ask questions to explore their thought. We're able to come up with solutions that fit for them, that make them feel human, that make them feel listened to, make them feel like, I could do that. Could I really do that? Could I really have a conversation about what I really need to do with my line manager? You know, I'm like, you know, I don't know. I work with a headmaster, for example. I do work with a headmaster and the headmaster will go, could I have that conversation? I go, why not? Yeah. That's interesting now because I've I've got a business uh, a leadership business leadership mentor, and I I've just started I've been seeing him for about a year now, and the last session I had with him, I start and I come out like literally flying out like wanting to get things done, um, and and I was thinking about why what what is it that makes me think right I can now do things after I see him yeah. and I think and I think I don't know if you were touching on it there but it's almost like he gives me permission sometimes now that's that sounds silly because I can do it's part of my job to do these things anyway but he almost puts it in a way where I'm like 
actually, yeah, I've got. I, I actually do have the permission to do that to go and see yeah. to that person. I, I, to, yeah, yeah, and with your blessing, what I do is I pick up on that piece because it's really subtle about giving permission. There's a lot of people out there that get paid a lot of money to coach, but they don't coach really. What they do is they mentor and tell people what to do. And I kind of keep that in the locker. That's kept there. So if somebody's really stuck, I just go, would you like an idea or a view or some feedback or a thought? But the intent is always to go, what well, do you think of that idea? And if they say it's crap, I go, that's brilliant. I'm delighted. Has it made you think of a better one? <laughs> but the notion is to, what I want them to do is to be in a position they almost give themselves, not almost, they give themselves permission. I haven't given them permission. What I've done is I've created a space in which they're comfortable to say what they think, what they feel, what they think is the best option. And they haven't felt foolish as a result of saying it. And as a result of saying it loud, they've been able to process it and go, actually, there's some real, you know, cognitive thought behind that, as well as intuition, as well as experience. And actually, you haven't laughed at me. I go, I wouldn't anyway, would I? But you haven't laughed at me. No, no, no. Think that through a bit more. So um, I hope you don't mind, but I think that that permission is I. I it's yeah, a real and I think careful line. I don't think we're disagreeing there. I think it's maybe just the way I worded it. I think it's, I think it's picking up on what you said about intuition, like going in thinking, well, I know what needs to be done here. Um, I'm, 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 I'm coming up against some resistance, for example, which which we all do in leadership, coming up against yeah. that resistance, and it's, and then it just it almost needs that conversation for me to actually go right. No, I'm gonna go with what I want. I'm gonna, I'm gonna push, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna sell what I need. And that's what I meant by like almost, not that that person specifically given the permission, but that just almost like the clear path is, is shown, like the 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 the, re, the reaffirmation of actually, no, this is what I need to do, and I'm gonna gonna do it. Thank you, and thank you. Let me make the point that I did. I, you know, as a coach, perhaps I should have asked you a question about what you meant by permission. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right we got that we got that i think it's really interesting obviously where we've met um stefan previously has been um working together on the uh programs around digital training for um people from smes and yes. uh it's, it's crazy because um we've never met in person we've never met even on a video call until relatively recently, but had been working together to help people in businesses. Uh, I've been particularly doing the digital stuff and you've been doing the, the broader business stuff around around that as well. But I, I find it really interesting that you've been able to coach the CEOs at, um, and, and big people running big organizations. And then you're still being able to coach people in SMEs or who are looking to get in, into employment. Um, my, my thought process really or around as you're talking there about coaching is is that because the principles are the same whether you are running a big organization or whether you're running a small organization or do you have to be adaptive and flexible and agile to be able to to be able to do that it's a good question i think from a coaching perspective it's very similar i think that and probably because of what i focus on it's very similar I'll try and explain what I mean by that in a moment. Um, and then I guess it's because in the background, as I talked about, you've got this plethora of experience that you can you can draw upon. So what I mean by this, so let, let's think about this. So at one end of the spectrum of coaching, I can ask questions which purely facilitate thought. I wouldn't have to have any knowledge of what you do. So often with the people we work with on the programme they're talking about, I go, we've got two hours. 
if I could wave a magic wand, what would I help you fix in those two hours? To ask that question, followed up with what would make, why, why is that important to you? What difference would it make to you? Where are you in relation to that goal now? What do you do that enables you to be a three out of 10 or a four out of 10, where 10 is your goal? Um, and what could we do to move you to a five or a six or a seven and set? I need no prior knowledge whatsoever. And then that's the starting point. Then I go across the other end of the spectrum, which is if I'm working with a CEO or an MD or a business owner or somebody looking to market their business, at this end of the spectrum, I have a plethora of questions in my armory based on all the years I've done, which means I can go, right, so um, how many customers do you want to acquire this year? How much revenue do you want to hit? What's the board asking you to do? What's the relationship like between you and the board members? That kind of thing, because I'm driven by knowing what that's like. And then in the middle, I guess what I do is I span this space whereby irrespective of job or level of what you do, I just I switch between the two based on largely having had so many experiences over the past, what is it now, 20 years, I can't believe, 20, 20 years or so, um, to be able to dip in and out. And I think what I, what, what I pride myself on, I guess, is, is the adaptability consciously to step into those different spaces, but always leave the responsibility with the person in the room. And so I think, um, I don't know how well I've articulated that, but that's how I work. So I can be this end, end with no knowledge. I can be that end with knowledge and I can span the two. And because I've pretty much played all of those roles, it just so happens that if I need to and the person's really stuck, I can go, I imagine being stuck in your space from what you've said. This is going through your mind at the minute. Is that right? Yeah. I, I have somebody who loves the thought of coaching uh, and the ideas of it and, uh, and and has worked alongside and some, some great coaches from what I believe in terms of uh, some of the work that I've done in education and, and, and some of the bits as well. The, the, just a bit of an interesting one there that do you feel your success, but I suppose your impact as a coach do you feel that you are strong as a coach because of your skill set and your ability but you are making more of an impact because of your experiences at all levels or do they go in hand in hand there's a good question there's a good question how do i answer that Sorry. I think when I was no, no, it's a really good question. Apologise, so it's a brilliant question. Um, I think when I was first taught to coach, there was a view that uh, th there's a school of thought which is about the notion of responsibility, capability, everything lying in the coaching. And I have a massive swathe of that, which underpins everything that I do. A massive, massive swathe of it. And I guess my ability comes from the fact of when I started for the first year, that's how I coached because I didn't know nothing. I knew the first two years, I knew nothing about the jobs that people were doing, really. I'd no idea how to manage and I'd no idea how to lead. So I had real a real strong bedrock in just facilitating thought. And so I guess that is a, that's a strength that underpins. If I was being honest with you, which I would be anyway, but in the spaces that I operate in and the differences I make in the short spaces of time I'm able to make, it's because of my expertise or my knowledge of those areas. So what I mean is I don't guide, I don't tell, I don't drive, but I just go. Do you know what? I was a leader once that had a really challenging conversation with my boss and we properly fell out with him. 
I properly fell out to the point that basically I don't know I stayed in the job. And you're worried that that might happen. How can I remove that fear for you so you can be the person you need to be? So I guess I can't say one or the other. I mean, that's my response. And and you know what? Great response. It's an honest response. Do you know, I think honesty is, is key in everything. Do you know, yeah, I, I think it's key. Do you know, I think that's the key bit. But I just, I, I, apologies. I just think, and I, what I find fascinating about this is you've trained well, and clearly you've you've gone through your coaching process. But the thing that stands out is there are so many coaches out there that are seen as good coaches or are brought in as coaches because they've done that level and they can give an opinion of, I've done something great before at that level, yeah. so I could tell you how to be great. Mm. Well, I think your bit, and I think the strength from what I'm hearing, and obviously I've never been coached by yourself and I've not, never seen it in practice, but it, it, you know, I, I believe in it and I trust it, that your bit is... It's not opinionated. It's not coming in. Your your quality as a coach and the quality of the coach should come through based on applying and getting people to understand how they can be better rather than coming in an opinion of how, regardless of what somebody's going to tell you, I already have a prerequisite of I know how I can make you better before I've even met you. And I think I've, I've, I've come across too many people um, and, and been involved with too many people where, like I say, it's not coach. It's basically this is my blueprint of how I can get you to be better. That's fine but it's based on maybe a 1990s model of business or a different approach. And so I don't know where I'm going with it. I just think that's what I'm hearing. And I think that's the difference from what I've seen in terms of some of the other work and some of the other coaches I've come across, not right or wrong. I know I have come across some good coaches, come across some shockers as well. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I just, I'm just fascinated by it. So sorry, what were you going to say anyway, Stefan? I just, I'm no, waffling. I dare I, 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 you. I, I was going to say um, you're not waffling at all, and then I'm desperate to go waffle. Let's explore that. <laughs> <laughs> is um, so, for example, you know what, what I say is, yeah, I think I think the strength is just is to do that. You know, I getting licensed to do that is based on trust with the people that you work with. And so, for example, I've not been a CEO. I've not been an, an MD. Uh, certainly not of an organisation with multi billions of dollars. Or pounds um but i have led so i've got a sense of it i just haven't led at that level but you know i had a conversation with a brand new uh director who's taken on a sales and ops role really punchy job really punchy job and the premise was i just know broadly that that person needs to think about what they want to be known for broadly they need a plan that they're going to phase out over a period of time and they need to have a conversation with their line manager to agree that so guess what? We have a chat about what do you want to be known for? They work that out. They shape it. And, and then I go, hey, will you use that? They have um, a plan that they work out. The first phase is to understand the business. The second phase is to work out some quick wins. The third phase is to work out is to start to work on the medium ter term wins. And the fourth place is to work on the longer term. There's no template. There's nothing I give them. They just go, I need to work that those four phases out, don't I? Brilliant. If that makes sense to you, sounds brilliant. How are you going to get license from your boss to do that? So there's like there'll be a book that has a pamphlet in it. There'll be a PDF you can buy from somewhere. But now the person I've worked with has their own four phases. They have their own four labels for those phases. They have their own structure for a conversation with their boss. And they also know what they need to, they want to be known for 
which will be their version of their leadership book that they'll use for the rest of their career. And now as a result, when he moves into his next director position, he will be a far better director than he was the time before. And he'll be able to teach the directors that come behind him with his own methodology and uh, philosophy. Um, I know those things need to be in place, but it's much better that he works out what his version is of it, as long as there's some, you know, some, uh, what's the word, uh, overarching pieces that are agreed. Does that make sense? I think it does. And I think that is a brilliant segue into a conversation about education as well, because obviously what you were talking about there was rather than just telling people what to do and saying is the answer, it's helping them discover that almost themselves um, with, with, with prompts and with facilitation yeah. and with coaching and maybe some mentoring at some points, but certainly, um, and some certainly sometimes some instructional elements and that's okay as well. But yeah. the reality is that um, it, it lands better when somebody discovers it for themselves. And Steve was obviously talking about curiosity earlier before as well. And I, and I, and I wonder then it from an education perspective and because I think a lot of this stuff is, is, He's super relevant for life as well as for education. But where we're talking about here, I think there's a one of the one of the models that we've tried to try to bang on about really is this ability of self of discovery and about students to be, being able to discover. Um, and I wonder whether you see the same kind of principles of applying in, in an education setting. There's a question. <laughs> uh, I do, without a shadow of a doubt. I think, you know, broadly, without trying to sound too contrived, you know, the world is changing at a, a, at a rate which is faster than anything we've ever known. And I think broadly in business as well as in life, you know, you can't possibly hope to be the technical um, the technical guru. There are a few, but, you know, broadly when you lead or when you manage or when you go into an organisation and when you're trying to be a good employee – the world travels so fast that to be able to be a technical guru in a particular area with a particular knowledge set, with a particular skill set, um, it just isn't the same. And I think so as a result, you know, in business as in life, what you need to do is to be able to equip people with the ability to find their motivation, to equip people to be able to identify what their strengths are, what the challenges are for people to be able to look at a challenge or a problem and work out how to fix that challenge and problem. And you need people to be in a position to be able to advocate for themselves and to advocate for others. Um, to have a value base, to have an empathy, for have an understanding, to be able to understand I'm a little dot in the world, but there's a phenomenal world. And, you know, I'm really important, but the world might be more important. Said, so how do I align my thinking, what I do, how I do it, and every decision I make and tweak and change I make to be better for the greater whole. And you don't learn that without being too harsh. You don't learn that by being taught to do long division. You, you simply don't. And I, I'll give you an example. So, for example, you know, I was academically brilliant. Bear with me on my children on the other side, which is fine, but it's loud. Um, so academically, I was awesome. I did got 10 A's and a B at GCSE. My family have never moved out of the village they were in. My parents are both really bright and creative in a way that wouldn't really have been recognised in school. But I somehow managed to go to school and knock my results out of the park. I then fell off the horse because I kind of went, I've got all these exam results, but what was the bloody point? Excuse my French. What was the point? 
Then I went on off and did uh, five A-levels. And I'd got no idea about me self-determining what I wanted to do on my A-level. So I did maths, physics, chemistry, PE, and general studies. The first three were dull as dishwater, but I was told I should do them because it would get me into Oxford. So I went to Oxford as a prospective student, right? I didn't go in the end because I hadn't got the confidence to go. Because it was daunting. It was too overroaring. And I'm like, I'm a straight A student. And I only did the A-levels that I did because I was guided to do them because it would be good for the school and it would be good for the university and, and it would conform with this notion of going to these really academic studies. As we've now found out, I should have done, you know, psychology, I should have done English, I should have done history, I should have done art. Um, and I think it's pertinent to say, as I said in the intro, you know, I became a, a, I've become a, um, a barista making coffee. I said I wanted to be a barrister when I was at uni. School didn't equip me because of the background that I had to have the confidence, the social wherewithal, the ability to stand in a room full of public school boys and girls and feel comfortable. And that comes from being able to work out who you are, what your motivations are and the capabilities you do have. And um, I'll just be clear, I think teachers do a phenomenal job. I know loads of teachers. They inspire me every day. But um, broadly, we can get on to it. I home educate my two children. I'm not a hippie, by the way, just to be clear. But I home educate my two children. And it's not because of the teachers. It's because of the system. I've taught 12 to 15 to 500 people in a room. And I wouldn't want any more than 12 to 15 adults in a room. Because I can't treat them as individuals. So what makes somebody think I can't manage my two kids at times? <laughs> what would make anybody think I could teach them and develop them other than by rote to have 30 of them in the room? And that's no slight on the teacher. That's just an unexpected, that's a ridiculous expectation on any human. The same as in an organization, we rip out span, we rip out management layers, and we end up with people line managing 30 and 40 people. It's not possible. It's a false economy. And also, you put that many people under line management, under somebody's guise as a teacher, and it becomes a process and a instruction rather than a guide and a development process, I think. Yeah. It's easier to mass adopt, isn't it? Instruction and by rote learning is easier to mass adopt. The reality is if we've got 30-odd children in a class or... 500 a thousand children in a school like it's easy to mass adopt if you if you're doing if everybody's doing the same thing if we're actually thinking about each individual and guiding and coaching them individually and trying to trying to move them um along their individual personalized journeys adapted learning journeys that takes time and it's not as easy to mass produce and so i wonder yeah. if that's part of it as well but that is why this that's how the education says this current education system, that's how it was set up. So many years ago, and I'm sure everybody knows this, many years ago people used to come in and have conversations and explain and answer questions like you do in a, uh, in a master's, and they'll ask you questions based on what you've kind of produced. And you'd explore it and people would ask you questions, but the educators of the world then said, it's great. But it's not. It won't take us to where we need to be because we need to do this with more people. So what they created is a system where they could simply, on mass, demonstrate people just regurgitating information quicker. And three hundred years later, 
we're still in a position where we're still doing exactly the same thing, but it was never created for a benefit. It was doing done for mass production of, of, of a check, not actually to demonstrate how we can coach and how we can develop information and how can somebody can demonstrate their best knowledge. It's basically just a system on mass. Um, so yeah, I think the system and we had it, we've gone back to it a couple of times. The system is working perfectly. The education system is whether you believe it's right or wrong. We currently constantly on this podcast say that it, we think it needs a massive change um, because it was developed for this purpose to mass evidence people passing a test and in a point of time, not actually demonstrating how good they are at uh, lots of different things. That's it. Simple, isn't it? It's, but it's bonkers, really. Wow, that Damn. ended quick, didn't it? Well, you know, so you know, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm holding back for a moment because I realised I semi got on a soapbox. Um, at Dan, Dan looked like he was going to say something. I, it's just my look. That's how I always look, Stefan. Uh, <laughs> no, it's good. Um, it's almost like you guys read my essay from last week. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, we... guys. Nobody's ever thought of this before until Dan wrote the essay last week. Yeah. Just, just remember that. <laughs> To be fair, though, it was a strong essay, Dan, and yes, I did yeah, read it. Yeah, yeah. Very good, very good. Yeah, cheers, Ben. The, I guess um, I want to get into the homeschooling because uh, I, th- I think everybody everybody who doesn't do it kind of thinks, are you mad, <laughs> first of all? Um, what what goes on? Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm going to be – I'm aware I'm being quite negative here, but that's because I, I'd, I'd love to be enlightened. And that's. And I think a lot of people want to know what's going on at home, what what do you teach them, yeah. is there, what yeah. standards are there. And, and yeah. I know a lot of our listeners are, are, are teachers and are educational professionals as well. So, And I, I've got I've got two young kids, a two- and a three-year-old, and I'm, I'm constantly exploring alternatives and from just the, the mainstream and – and what, what else we can do with them. So I, I just for my own personal benefit, really, I'd, I'd love yeah. to know what, what it involves, what challenges there are, and, and, and how do you see in, and maybe this is the wrong question you can you can tell me, how you see being better than the, than the system? Ooh, that's a question. So I guess what, let me premise as well, just so thank you for the question. I'll go with what Steve said. I, I think what broadly would I say? I've seen and experienced people learning through doing, through experience, by being facilitated, by being group coached to a phenomenal degree. To get to an outcome, even passing a test, I've seen that work. I've done it. So I think there's more scope for it. If the system was to create the outcomes that we're talking about, just that linear outcome, then I think there's more scope to do that and develop skills and human beings whilst doing that if the aim stayed the same. But I do fundamentally think the aim needs to change. Uh, So I'd say that. And I'd be really happy at another point to explore how I think that could operate. The second thing I'd say is I think there are some schools, there are some teachers, there are some people who are outliers that are proving that things can be done in a slightly different way in a way that might fit more with the the conversation we're having. And I think what we need to do is to go accept that those are more outliers than they are the rule. And what we need to do is to find out what it is about those schools, those people, that environment, that culture, those parents that enable a more, uh, what's the word, call it rounded for simplicity, 
they're able to do that. And that's part of what coaching does is it models best practice. We learn from and we go, hey, could we get five or 10 or 15% of that more? I've never done that study, but I think it would be really useful. And I've seen it work within business. I don't see why it couldn't work with educating kids. On the homeschooling front, I'll have to give you like a short version of, so my wife came up to me and she said, I would like to homeschool Will. Will is 10. And I looked at her as if to go, you have two heads. Why on earth would I want to homeschool my kids? And I use this word on purpose as a homeschooler. I feel like I can say I'm not a hippie. I just need to be clear. There are a massive spectrum of people at home ed. There are people that don't put their children in school. There are people that put their school in children. Their children have problems. They bring the children out. There are people that have a massive issue with education. There are people that are former teachers. There are people that follow the curriculum. There are people that have really close liaisons with schools and essentially do what the teachers do, but they do it at home. But often what, what gets reported in the news is the person that's got really cool dreadlocks with purple clothes and happens to teach their kids in the forest. And I'm not going to say that teaching the kids in the forest isn't a really great way of doing it. What I'm just going to say is, unfortunately, that's the only version that really ever seems to get told. So that's what I'm going to say. So I went, everybody will think I'm in that camp. <laughs> stupid. I'm just going to say it was stupid. So I went to my wife, convinced me that we should home ed ask kids, because if I'm convinced, I'll stand up to the world. And I'm not new, any new age convert. I won't stand there and go, I am it. I'm really proud. I am proud, but I'm not going to go and ram this down anybody's throats. So my wife talked to me about her experiences at school and what it was like for her. We're both professional educators, by the way, both trained to train, both trained to coach. Um, and she talked through her experiences at school of being bullied, about not being looked out for, of not being treated as an individual, um, not having her needs met, a whole host of stuff. And she went, it just didn't work for me. And I went, well, I'm strong, I'm fit, I'm a bloke. You know, it made me tougher. And then we went, you've had two breakdowns, Steph. I'm not saying that's because of school, just to be clear. I'm going to go, you've had two breakdowns, Steph. You've driven yourself into the ground to be successful all of your life. And you've had, for a large part of your life, massive insecurities about whether you were good enough and the way you think and feel and act and what you do is good enough. I went, oh, yeah. And I went, when I was at school, I got bullied, but I sorted out the bullies because my teachers, my parents went, if somebody hits you, you hit them back twice as hard. And so I learned to hit them back twice as hard, but I still got bullied. I just forgot I got bullied. Um, when I was at school, I put my hand up first all the time and I went, I can answer the question because I was like, I, I can do this. I know the answer. And eventually I got pulled to one side by the teachers and with no great grasp of it, and they just went, stop answering the questions. You need to give somebody else a chance. And up to that moment, I'd been in all the school plays and all the performances as the lead singer with no thought about, look at me, I just enjoyed singing. I stopped talking, singing, answering questions, playing any part whatsoever from the moment that that person went, you need to give everybody else a chance. It wasn't the teacher's fault. The teacher had got to teach a hell of a load of people to be in the right space. And I wasn't giving anybody else a chance. But there was no time to deal with that situation well. I was just quashed and crushed. Then what happened a bit later on, I, you know, this is a bit like a life story, sob story, but I went through my history there. And, and you know, for example, um, um, you know, even getting to the exam stage, I, I ended up doing subjects that weren't right for me, that didn't interest me in the slightest. There was nothing there. 
And when I was intellectual and I was good, I didn't get stretched in any way. I just stood in a class and got bored. And so I went, if I combine those thoughts, you've actually started to get me to think. And then there was the whole socialization piece. And I'm not trying to convert anybody, just to be clear. <laughs> but I went, I, I like to think things through. And I went, socialization is massively important. My children socialize with loads of kids. They get a forest school. They talk to loads of people. They talk to loads of adults. They have a really good laugh. But I went, how many people do we really socialize with when we're in school? We sit in one table often. With the, well, I did when I was a kid. Uh, we sit in one table with four kids and we might talk to all four. We have a break time. We have our best friend and we talk to our best friend. Then what happens is we play sports because if we've been good enough to be in the clique, to be in the football team, and I was good at sport, by the way, so I hold no grudges. But if you're in the clique in the football team, you have 12 mates in the football team or 24. No, you don't. You don't socialise with 24 or 12 of them. You socialise with your best mate and maybe you'll talk and take the mick out of the, all the other 11 or 12. So I went, socialisation. So then I went, you've kind of converted me that we might have a try. And then she went, do you know what age they tend to um, uh, put kids in school on the continent? And I may or may not be right here, but she went, you know, generally we're talking five, six, seven. I went, well, why don't we try Will till he's seven? have the freedom to see what happens. And then we'll judge, and we never want Will to be more than one to two years behind what we perceive the other kids in school would be. And as long as I have that safety net, which I felt I needed, we're all right. And we've just gone with it. And um, I thought we'd have curriculums out, we'd have all the key stages, which Becky, my wife, knows, and I've got no clue. I thought we'd do all this, and we put the books in front of Will, and we do all this stuff, and we haven't. Really busy, haven't managed to do it. And Willoughby is one of the, it's not because he's my son, he's bright, he's intelligent, he's on the ball, he's confident, he talks to people, he problem solves, he's a royal pain in the arse to me and challenges me like a legend. There's very few people in the world that do that. And I don't just mean by frustration, he asks me questions that make me shudder. And I guess... What I would say is Willoughby desperately didn't want to learn to read. He wasn't interested. I go, you've got to learn to read. It's how working class people get out of this crap. And you've got to learn to write, Will, because it's how working class people get out of this crap. I'm working class, as you can probably tell. I've never said these words, so I'm saying them to you. And he went, I'm not interested in reading, Dad. Don't want to know him. We read to him every night. He said, I'm not interested. Don't want to learn to read. Not bothered. I went, you've got to. That's because that's what everybody else does, Will. You'll never get on. And so he we went, I ain't going to read. And I said, right, you know that iPad you're addicted to? What I'm going to do is you are only allowed to go on the iPad if you read one book a day. I think that's fair. You read one book and we'll teach you and you'll do that. And he went, I ain't doing it. There's my daughter having fun with my son, if you heard the scream. Um, they're fine. Um, and my son went, I'm not going to read. I went, you are. I thought, the man says you've got to read. He's only like five or six at this stage. And he goes, right, gets a book, slams a book on the table. He opens the table out. Thank the Lord this happened, by the way. I couldn't have asked for it to be better. But he went, got the book, opened it out, and he read the first two pages word for word perfect, having never read to me in his life. Having never sat down to read a book ever. The sod had taught himself to read so that he could cheat on his game, on his on his game, on his on his iPad, and so he could get more credits. 
and he could read beautifully and really well as a result of having the motivation to work out how to crack the game. No, no, get me. And, he, and his maths, because he wants to know all about how he gets his credits and where he spends, and he's really clever at asking me for money. Now, we're quite fortunate he's a bright spark, and we're also fortunate that Becky and I constantly go, what do you notice? What do you see? Where do you get? What's this, Will? And we throw that in every so often. But he just blew me away with what he picked up naturally. The twist now is that gave loads of confidence, and I'll reel us in so you've got time to ask some questions, is we're at the stage where he's 10. And we're now at a stage where we're thinking about exams and we're having to think about what do we need to do? Should he do exams? I'm not going to have that debate, but I think it's a worthwhile question. Should he do exams? Does he need to do 10 now? Could he do five now, do five later? Does he need to do them at all? Will, what do you think? That'll be the chat. But we'll tell him why you do exams and what they get you, right? But we're in that place. So we're now talking with the idea of do we actually find a school that we think we can put him in? And I, instead of being the home educator that sits on the outside with a son that, thank the Lord, is doing a good job of teaching himself largely, um, do I do I jump on the, do I see if I can now jump on a board and be rather than a potential thorn in anybody's side, which I wouldn't be, but can I help them to be in a position to do an even greater job? So um, that's a home edder who isn't new age convert, who is learning as they go along. And thankfully, the child is teaching us to chill our boots. I think, Dan, you can come in if there's any further questions. I've got two children. My wife just texted me saying they're both down. And then she's also texted me two seconds later saying, no, they're not. So we're as quick as they're down. So Ella's two and a half and all these 10 months. Um, somebody who's toying with that already and thinking about what that looks like and, and, and everything else. The thing that's probably resonated with me for this whole conversation as I've listened is purpose. And I know we mentioned it before we came on air that the reason why you've done everything that you've done, why you've probably been successful, why your son learned to read, why I do the stuff that I do and everybody does the stuff is purpose. And I think kind of bringing it back round is coaching and everything that we're talking about here is guiding and developing people to understand what their purpose is so they can help with others with their purpose. Because if you don't have a purpose and you're not passionate about your purpose or you think that your role is to do this and this and this, without, and I just think without purpose and without developing a purpose, you can't ever move anything forward. Like, you know, you've picked, and I think your wife has done a, a great job of showing what the purpose would be. And, 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 and it's interesting. Uh, it'd be a fly on the wall in, in a house of a husband and wife that are coaches. Nobody ever kind of makes a decision. You just both coach a decision out of each other. The opinions must be fascinating over what you're going to have for breakfast and everything else. But, <laughs> I, I, and again, I, I, like I said, Dan is a succinct one who, who can put questions better. But I just think, for what I've listened over the last 55 minutes, I think purpose is key. Leading, coaching, opening a coffee shop, painting, developing homeschooling and your children and everything else is, is about your purpose. Going back into coaching was about what you wanted to achieve. You tried it and you're like, this is my purpose, this is my calling, this is what I really, really, really love. But also the purpose was to, to create a space where it still allows you to do it, but your purpose is now around your children as well and being a, and a dad. So that, it's just my thoughts. It's not a question, but I just think I think purpose is probably the, the, the need and the, 
the real focus of purpose is probably key in everything and every aspect that we've talked about tonight. Yeah, and, and if I may, um, if I kind of answer what is my purpose, I'll take that as a question. I guess I wrote, so what do I do? I, I, I advise, I coach, and I friend, I, I'm a friend to you know, leaders and business owners. That's the strap line. But the real strap line that's sat in the background for weeks now as I'm going through a rebrand for my businesses, I've gone back to coaching, is um, helping good people do great things. And what I mean by that is people with a good art who want to make a difference, I want to help them do great things. My son's got a good art, I want to help him do great things, whatever his version of is of a great thing. I work with leaders who've got a good art, I wouldn't work with a leader who hasn't got a good art. So a good person who wants to do great things, I just go, how do I bring every inch of my being and every cell in my body and every ounce of experience to a question or a thought or a reflection to help that really good person do a great thing? And and you know, I've not thought about it till this moment, and I don't mean it contrived. If we look at the one thing that school taught me that it probably never intended to teach me, is I went, I'm a really good person that feels a bit in that moment, in that moment for me, like I'd been let down. And I went, I'm a good person who wants to do great things. And I just went, I'm gonna to have to do them for myself then, aren't I? And so um, knowing what it feels like to have a good art, but not really feeling like you're able to bring it to the table drives me to try and help people with a good art to do good things too. Love that. I think it's a key area of, of leadership. Um, yeah, I really do. You're doing things for the right things, uh, not because somebody else has told you to do so. Or uh, I often speak to, to my team around growth of business. I'm not a salesperson and I'm a PE teacher originally, but I think the thing that I always talk about is um, growth is not just money, not just revenue, not just margin, but growth of an individual and growth of everything else that sits within the business. But, um, but yeah, yeah, it's really interesting doing the thing, right things at the right time. Okay, yeah. Sorry, totally I'm talking myself. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, totally agree. I think there's a uh, there's loads of stuff we could. Uh, tie into and i know that um the the doing great things thing is actually tied into uh one of your philosophies in the way that you work in terms of the coaching models that you do as well so yeah, yeah. Um, i know that if uh if, if anybody isn't already following stefan or it, for a lot of our listeners this might stefan will be a new person to you so if you're not already following him on linkedin or on twitter then do uh follow him because uh, he, he posts out loads of stuff there curated content that he finds as well as his own unique insights um you you often find him um on his bike somewhere or uh, uh sat in a coffee shop um uh he'd done a little bit of a painting or a drawing somewhere and and then just put it out there it's just it's, it's fascinating honestly you go from when you've when you've heard somebody talk about doing a law degree then going and doing some coaching then going working in a bank then opening a coffee shop then doing art then going back coaching, then homeschool. Literally, there is a whole plethora of content that goes out there from from Stefan, and there's a lot of people around Stefan who rave about what he does and the difference that he's made in terms of his uh, in, in terms of, of of their businesses. A lot of small businesses that we're working with who um, can't speak more highly of uh, of Stefan. So I know it's been um, it's been great just to hear what you what you're talking about and what you've got uh, up your sleeve. So thanks for sharing that with us today. Thank you so much.
Thank yeah. you. And I just do I do want to say you did protest quite a bit that you weren't a hippie, Stefan, but you used to have a big beard, used to have long hair, <laughs> draws or produces art, likes yeah, yeah. to drink coffee. I think it's yeah, it's yeah. all adding up. Do you have good. a camper van? <laughs> Is that a tiger? You know I have a camper van. I have <laughs> really, I have, I do, I do. I have, I have. Although uh, there's a sad story, but I'm about to sell it. But it is a Volkswagen um, Jürgen's Auto Villa, which is a, a Volkswagen van with a purpose-built caravan on the back from South Africa. A thousand of them made. It is cool ass. And um, without being too much of a sob story, we lived in it for ten weeks in lockdown when we had to sell our house. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's before you go. You know the you mentioned the seven step process before. Are you is that is that written down somewhere? Is it? Can we go find out about that, or do we have to book in a session with you, Stefan? No, no, it's written down. Um, What should we say? So it is written down. Here we go. Am I going to do something that I I shouldn't? It is written down. Perhaps what I'll do is I'll create you a one pager PDF with the headings. It's there, and uh, you can have the seven steps. And then if anybody wants to talk about it, because I haven't written the book that supports it, it's just in my head, um, I'll uh, I'll explore it further. So, yeah, there you go. All right? Love that. Look forward yeah. to seeing that. Yeah, good stuff. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, Stefan. Really enjoyed it. Really, really good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and uh, as as we always say, make sure that you um, you connect to to Stefan to continue learning because obviously it's not just this hour. It's just gone. Over, it's tipped over the hour, so uh, it's not just the hour on the podcast. But we will let you get back to your children, and we'll get back to ours too. So thanks for joining us this evening. And uh, for those listeners, we'll we'll see you, hear you, talk to you next week. Cheers. Bye bye. One.